Apple presents Meet the Author. Please join me in welcoming this evening's guest moderator, award-winning reissue producer and music writer, Harry Weinger, and tonight's guest, author of A Woman Like Me, Betty Levette. So, <laughs> I don't know why I'm here. Well, I'm here, I'm, I'm supposed to read. And you see, that doesn't happen often, so. Okie dokie, I turned it off. <laughs> Time I touched it, I turned it off. Okay. I uh, chose to read this because it's actually the lyrics to one of the songs that is on the new CD. Uh, thankful and thoughtful. But I found as we were recording the tune that uh, the song and, and most of the tunes on the CD were extremely exemplary of, of the album, what the story was about. This is a song written by Ms. Uh, Kim McLean, and the uh, lyrics are just what I would have said if you had said, write a story about your book. <laughs> I'm an open book. I ain't got no secrets. My story bleeds poetic lines. For all my deep introspection, it's still my heart that they can't find. They just go on, they just keep on talking. They never doubt the things they do. As for me, I'm still a mystery, eluded by the simple truth. All I did was touch the outside here. You gotta touch this side to go back. Ah. In my vain humiliation, I've wandered through shame's dark halls. I've donned a new name, assumed me a new nature, fooling nobody, just creating walls. So many chances I've taken, so many choices I've made. I choose again today to seek love. God, if it's you, please let me in. The more I search, the more I die. I want to live, I want to be alive. Am I saved or am I broken? Am I healed or just justified? The more I search, the more I die. And that's all I'm reading. <laughs> Thank you, Betty LeVette. That's from her memoir, A Woman Like Me, which is out, and her new album is called Thankful and Thoughtful. Um, I, I, I wrote down a few notes and, um, about what I wanted to talk about and about Betty and we were going to talk about together. And, uh, you know, writing it all down just sounded too pat because that's not what she's about. It's, it's never too pat. It's raw. It's real. The book opens with a real bang. She lets you write in. And preparing to come down here, I, I rewatched some of the clips from recent performances. And all of a sudden, I was like, if you've seen the clip of her at the Kennedy Center doing the Who's Rain, Love Rain Over Me. And all of a sudden, I was Roger Daltrey just. <coughs> and my heart starts racing, and I got tears in my eyes, and I'm thinking, damn. That's who she is. When I first heard about the book project, we have a mutual friend, David Ritz, and he called me, he said, Betty LeVette is a singer. 
She can sing. I have to talk to her. Tell me how that came together for you. Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> I've always... You have to realize until just a short time ago, all I had was these stories. And I've told many of them a million times. Just so that you would know how I identified with those people that you've made stars while I was left behind. I've always told the joke, uh, it's not a joke, it's actually real. I've always said, I know everybody at Motown. I've seen them either drunk or naked or broke or all three. And there would always be a little chuckle and that would be that. So now I have a manager for the first time in about 35 years. And we were at dinner and I made that statement and the person that was there with us chuckled and said, oh, you should write a book which has always come up whenever I'd make a statement or tell one of the stories. And my manager, Eric Gardner, said, would you like to write a book? And I said, well, I, you know, I just always thought that a book would certainly be written about me, but certainly after I died, I thought that my children and my friends and my husband would get together and write a, write a book just because I've done so many things for the 50-year wait and been so many places. But in writing a book, I found it to be different because I thought it would be more like what we're doing right now, having a conversation. I'd tell this little story, you would chuckle, and that would be the end of it. But in writing the book, I made my little statement about, I've seen everybody at Motown either drunk or naked or broke or all three. And the writer said, which ones? <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> and then he said, and, what were you doing when they were doing that? <laughs> so writing the book was completely different than these stories that I have told for the last almost 50 years. But that's how the David book came about. The next day he was uh, there after that evening, that dinner, he was there. I thought he was there to meet me. He was there to start the book. And there you go. <laughs> now you dedicate the book to a Jim Lewis. Mm -hmm. And I want to let the people know here who haven't read the book, just who is Jim Lewis to you? Well, he's, he's, he's the man that you, who made the artist that you see before you. I, uh, when I met him, in his words, he said, you've, uh, you've got a cute booty, but if you want to sing, you're, you're going to have to learn to sing. How old were you then? Um, 18. I, I had been singing two years, and I had had a record in the charts. So, of course, I thought he was stupid. And uh, <laughs> that went on like that for about <laughs> 10 years, that I thought he was stupid, and he knew I was. So uh, he's, um, he's the person who made me realize that, and I always tell young artists, uh, what's the one thing you would, you would admonish a young artist, and that's that, you may never become a good uh, a star, but if you learn to sing, you can make your living singing for all of your life, as I have. So he's the guy who played you records and helped and you to... And songs, made me learn really good songs so right. that I could... Of course, I mean, I was 18, I wanted to sing what my contemporaries were singing. I wanted to work where they were working. I wanted to be on American Bandstand. I didn't want to work in huge supper clubs, which is what he wanted me to do. And I thought he just wanted me to do that because he wanted me to be old like him. So I, and not be with my friends. 
but he just wanted me to be a, a, a good entertainer, which he made me. And, and just as he said, if I never sell another record, I will be able to work as long as I can sing. Why do you think he wanted to help you? Oh, baby, I don't know. <laughs> My God, you interviews can ask some of the most ridiculous questions. I don't know. I have no idea. I just know I'm grateful, but I haven't looked into him insightfully enough to say, gosh, he probably did this because of that. I have no idea. He had virtually no reason to because I'm sure he could have gotten artists who were more cooperative than I was. I, I mean, he couldn't tell me anything at first. So I, why he would want to do this. Uh, and, and, and he did love me. So that, that would be a great reason. This is the kind of preparation that you talk about in the book is not really prevalent now. Particularly with, you know, a show like American Idol, which brings people up in the public eye before they've really, in your mind, have a chance to prepare. Would you ask me that because they told you not to? <laughs> no, I just think that, I, I just know you can't, I just know you don't become proficient at anything in 13 weeks. I don't care what it is. I mean, if it's stacking boxes, you do not become proficient in 13 weeks. So it's very, uh, or it would be, were I younger, it would be extremely discouraging when I look at someone who sings for 13 weeks and then winds up either in a movie or on the cover of Vogue. And I just don't, I don't think that's right. Everything that I have, and most of the artists you see my age, I don't care whether they're the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or who, they probably worked harder for where they are than anyone that you've seen become a star in 13 weeks. So that's my take on the, the little talent show. So <laughs> you, uh, you grew up in Detroit. What was the uh, musical atmosphere like in Detroit outside of Motown? You were not necessarily, you were not at Motown and you were not necessarily in that family. No, when I was in Detroit, I was in the musical thing of Detroit. Nothing else was going on in Detroit but the local things. It just happened that Atlantic signed me and that whisked me to New York or at least gave me a palette to walk on in New York. But I was only 16. I wasn't involved in any scene. You know, I had a record and that was all I had. I didn't know anyone. I didn't hang at any bar. I, I hadn't seen a show. It's a little different than when you start at 21 or if you sing at all the bars or know all the groups. I knew everybody in my eighth or ninth grade class and that was it when my first record came out. What was that first tour like? Who were you on the road with the first time you went out with the record? It was just like if you took a high school student right now who plays basketball and sent him on the road with the NBA. I had no business even being there. I was just a groupie who could sing, and that, that was all. I had no, no finesse, no style. I just had raw talent, and I was just as thrilled about being with Benny King and Clyde McFadder and the Drifters as the girls in the audience were. And I acted the same way. <laughs> I've heard you tell this story a couple of times, and it's, it's in your book. You also spoke at Jerry Wexler's memorial that when you were wanting more attention at Atlantic and felt like you weren't getting it, you went to New York and told Jerry Wexler you wanted him to let you go, and he did something for you. He wanted he told you know, I didn't know anything about the record business at all. I didn't know that they weren't doing anything for me and that I should leave. My friends that I had met and known for a full seven months by then 
but I felt they knew all about the record industry and they told me, you should have another record by now. And I said, yes, I should, I think. And they haven't put anything out on you in 12 days. You should go and demand your contract back. Now, this is a bunch of people who are trying to break into show business, telling me I should go to New York and get a release from my contract. And I did, like an idiot. Uh, but Jerry Wexler, just like Jim Lewis, knew that I was an idiot. And he gave, me, uh, he gave me the release from the contract, and he wrote me his own personal check. He said, you're going to need this. And he never lied. <laughs> so out of his own pocket, his own he pocket. took Yes. That's great. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't owe me anything. I hadn't sold any records. Or whatever I had sold, I owed them because they had spent money, of course, in the promotion of it. And while the record did do well, it didn't do that great. A, a, a black record then, uh, we used to call them Jimmy Reed records because if they were confined to the black stations, you were only going to sell 25,000 of them. I don't care what. So it hadn't been really big enough for me to say, oh, I can go and get another contract. <laughs> so. These years that, um, after your first hit on Atlantic and you're a teenager, you're still trying to make it, you have a few records here and there, but things aren't happening. What kept you going? Oh, I, you know, at first it was, it was just pure silliness. If I had had any sense, I probably would have gone back to school. But it was fun being Betty Levette, and I thought I was extremely cute, and I thought I was extremely talented, and they didn't need that at school. So, you know, I wanted to stay where I was. But there was nothing, there was, I was 16 years old, I didn't need any. What kept you going? All that hadn't happened yet. It didn't, I didn't need anything to keep me going for another 15 or 20 years. <laughs> you know, I had energy. I didn't need anything to keep me going. But you wanted to keep singing. Yeah, I definitely wanted to keep singing. And that was, I, although I didn't know what to do next, that was, that was what kept me going, that I wanted to do it. And I mean, it was purely that I didn't know really what I was doing or how to get it done, but I knew I liked it and I knew that was what I wanted to do. And I hadn't had the opportunity to be anything else. It's just like now, uh, singing isn't what I do, it's who I am. I I'd never had a chance to learn anything else. I've done this since I was 16, so I really wouldn't, I wouldn't even tell you that I was gonna show up at your job every day at the same time and stay there eight hours, because I'm just not gonna do that, <laughs> period. And you, but you did get some steady work in Bubbling Brown Sugar. It's a few years on. So you did the... Oh, well, it had, it had been at least 15, you know. So it, 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 uh, I had gotten steady work with other records. It, it's an unusual... The only reason that I even considered the book, besides the people that I've known, and they still aren't people you know, I knew them when they were real people. But I, um, I always identified with them more than I did the people who were broke or the people who were struggling. And while I was struggling, I still didn't identify with people who were struggling. I want to fast forward a little bit and you start getting some attention um, for your records and start touring some more. And by now you're in your 50s. How did you feel when you start getting this kind of attention? relieved. I mean, I was 50. I, by the time I got to be about 55, which is really when this whole thing started, I, the only thing I could be at that point was relieved. I've already been excited, so you can't excite me anymore. 
And I've already been fooled. I can't be that anymore. I can't be impressed anymore. The things in this business that would impress you, I know what they are. I know who's got them, and I know I want them, and I know now where to get them and how. But I, um, when this started uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I was just relieved. I thought that I was going to, I thought I was going to die completely obscure and broke. I know I'm just going to die broke, but not obscure. <laughs> so I feel better. <laughs> the key thing about all these records is, like this experience of watching Love Rain Over Me, is that you are fully invested. It, it comes across to me that you just want to move us. I feel moved, you'll feel moved by the book because you're honest. So how do you approach these songs? What is your... Well, for one thing, I approach them like they're songs and that's really all they are. People ask how I do a Love Rain or Me and then a song by B.B. King. I grew up listening to songs by everyone. And one of the things that Jim really instilled in me was that they were all just words on a piece of paper at one time. No matter who sung them or how many copies of the song they sold, when I sing it, it's going to sound like Betty LeVette. That's all I can make it sound like is me. I don't have to take any kind of special instruction or do anything special to make it sound like me. Maybe if I were going to make Love Rain or Me sound like Roger Daltrey, I would have had to practice. But it took nothing to make it sound like me but to open my mouth and let it come out. And, and singing is the thing that I strictly look at as a gift. It, you can be taught to play an instrument. You cannot be taught to sing. You can only be taught to sing correctly. Only birds and people can sing. So anyone who can sing has been given a pure gift. You did absolutely nothing for it. So I look at it as starting off with a gift, you know, whether I got a chance to sell it or not. I have something that was given me. It's kind of like being given an oil well. Maybe I never get support and learn how to pump, get the oil out of the ground or whatever, but I started off with a gift. I could sing from the very beginning. When uh, you were, for example, working on the new record, how many songs do you get? How many come to you? And you got to pair it well, down. Well, I, I always say that everybody gives me about 50 or 100, but since my husband is there with me, worrying enough fellas the rec, the off record my collector. ass about songs, he gives me more of them than anybody. So he gives me songs all year long, whether we're working on anything or not. And then he just compiles a list for me. And I always have that list to choose from when we get ready to record. And my record company president, Andrew Calkin, whom I call my music guru, because he's thought of all these ideas for me to do these things. I, I would never have recorded an album with all the songs being written by women. I would never have recorded an album with anybody as young as the drive-by truckers, but he thought all these were good ideas, and they turned out to be good ideas. So I listened to him in terms of the ideas. Then they give me songs because I'm, I'm not a music enthusiast, so I don't sit around and listen to music. And I don't particularly care what anybody else is singing, so I don't follow music. So they uh, collect all these songs and bring them to me, and I listen to them, and it's very much like choosing a lover. You pretty much know who you want to be real close to and who you don't, and the songs are very like that. I know that I'm gonna get very involved in them, and I can only do that if I really like them or really find, you know, can find my way through them. I wanna talk about your name, if that's all right. Yeah. So 
I know your friends call you Betty Joe. Is that right? Yeah. You were Betty, born Betty Joe Haskins. Mm -hmm. How did you come to? No, they call me Bejo. Bejo. <laughs> Somebody couldn't say all the whole thing, or. Yeah, that's it's Betty Joe. Ebonically speaking, is Bejo. <laughs> and how did the Levette come in? Uh, from my very best friend, when I, the woman who. Uh, who introduced me to all the entertainers. She knew all the entertainers and all the pimps in Detroit. She was, she was a studied groupie. I meant she knew everyone. And she introduced me to them all. And her name was Sherma Levette. And I still cannot think of her last name, but Levette was her middle name. And I, I just thought it was such a pretty name. And uh, when I started to sing, uh, I asked if I could use, they told me I could change my name if I wanted to. And any kid you ask and they change their name, mostly will want to do so. And I did, and I asked could I use her name, and so that's how I uh, came up with Levette. Well, people now know your name all over the world, and um, we were talking earlier about how busy you are. Have you, it's a different kind of busy, am I right? You've always been working, singing, but now, Oh yeah, years. it's, it's, it's uh, I tell people that just, if, a few short years ago, I had one gig in Detroit called, at a place called Bomax. I knew exactly what time and what day. Now I've got six or seven gigs. I can't remember where they are for the life of me. <laughs> but, but I love it. I mean, I, I'm surrounded now with people who are telling me where to go, what to do next, uh, where to stand. And that's, that's, that's really good because my... This isn't all I think about anymore. It was all I thought about during the struggle. No matter what else I was doing, this was all I thought about. But now this is working, so I think about other stuff. Politics, mostly. <laughs> and you got to sing at the Obama inaugural concert. Tell us how that came about. You that came about from the Kennedy Center thing, the same producers, and the Kennedy Center honors thing came about because my, my husband called them to ask if I could sing, or had my agents call them to ask if I could sing to honor uh, George Jones, since I had one of George's tunes on the album I had out at that time. And they said that, you know, everybody was coming from Nashville to honor him, and, but they did have one slot. And it was uh, to sing a Who song. <laughs> I said, Who? Who? <laughs> but anyway, my husband knew everything that, that they had ever done. And I had never heard the song before, but here again, as I said, it was just a song. That's, it, was, it was just a song. And then, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, you did A Change Is Gonna Come, the Sam Cooke song. And that was kind of like... With John Bon Jovi. That was kind of like a asking a black person to speak Ebonics. <laughs> so that was absolutely nothing. It was more of a chore for Bon Jovi than it was for me. A Change Is Gonna Come, are you joking? It's like Amazing Grace. <laughs> Did you share a stage with Sam Cooke at any time? No, actually, um, the only time that Sam's life uh, crossed mine was before we moved to Detroit, uh, where I was born in western Michigan, in Muskegon, Michigan. My uh, family sold corn liquor during segregation during the, the late 40s. And if you came to Muskegon to perform and you were black, if you wanted a drink, you certainly couldn't drop into the neighborhood bar at the end of the day. And as most gospel singers did, I don't know what they do now, but as they did then, they dropped by my house. My mother had fried chicken sandwiches and barbecue sandwiches and corn liquor and the jukebox. 
And any group of singers, if you've got a group full of singers, they get drunk, they're going to sing. So they sung at my house, and uh, Sam then was, uh, when he first came by our house, he was uh, with a group called the Highway QCs. And then when he came back, he was with a group called the Soulsters. But I never got a chance to know him as, you know, the rhythm and blues singer Sam Cooke. Someone really influenced by Sam was Marvin Gaye. You want to tell your Marvin Gaye story? Which one? I mean, I'll... Well, you, were, you liked him a lot, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I liked him and chased him around. We worked... Uh, well, Motown was doing part of the Ritzy circuit and part, still doing part of the Chitlin circuit, and I was uh, doing the Chitlin circuit, and I, I just always thought that Marvin was just adorable, as every girl at Motown, every girl in Detroit did. But we were doing this, this one show at the Regal Theater, which was an intricate part of the Chitlin circuit in the 60s in uh, Chicago. And he was on the show, he, the Dells, Chuck Jackson, a whole gang of us. Because when you used to say, pay $5.50, you actually saw a show. <laughs> and it cost about 5 or $6 to get into any of the theaters. And you would see a movie, and then you would see a show. The show had maybe six or seven acts on it. And Marvin Gaye were, and I were two of the acts. And uh, I had just kind of flirted with him the whole week we were there. And just, I knew him, you know. I mean, he lived, still lived in Detroit then, and so did I. But uh, he was very, very, very bashful. And I uh, kept inviting him to lunch and inviting him to my room and inviting him out to dinner and whatever. And one night, he finally came uh, and knocked on my door. And I, he, I opened the door, and as I said, he was so bashful. He just turned around and left. There were so many people in my room, it was ridiculous. I hated them all. <laughs> if I had known that's when he was going to come, I would have planned my party for another night. <laughs> but that's all. I mean, that's, that's uh, really kind of innocent as my life goes. <laughs> well, the, the opening of the book, I said, is with a bang. But it's a tough scene. It reads like out of a strange movie. Out of a what? Uh, out of a strange kind of movie. But it's, it was your life. You wanna... Yeah, it, so it really doesn't sound that strange to me. I guess in retrospect, it almost sounds and seems surreal it, because I'm not the person that that kind of thing could happen to now. So it really kind of seems like it happened to someone else. And I guess it really did. I'd like to think that I'm a different woman at 66 than I was at 18. <laughs> Basically, someone holds Betty off a high rooftop by her ankles, and she has to flee for her life following that. Well, I was fleeing for my life when it happened, but, I, you know, the scenes that are, that are like that, if you want to know what they're all about, read the book. I'm telling you that they're torrid, tawdry, but I'm probably not going to walk you through my life with a pimp. On the new album, there's, an, again, a wide variety of songs. Have you got any particular things that you're fond of on the, on the new record? Mm-hmm. That one I just recited to you. The more I search, the more I die, because it's so exact. I mean, I like, uh, I like several of the songs on it, but that one is just in word and, and in song. It, it, I really like it. Well, between the book and the new record... We're getting to know more about you, and I really appreciate that. I've always loved you, and it's great to hear you out there and more and more people get to know about you. 
I know some people in the audience have some questions they'd like to ask. Turn it over. Right here in the back. Hi, my name is Daniel. Um, what hi, I Daniel. wanted to know, hi, uh, is that does it ever get tiring waiting so long for uh, something to kind of come about? You said you started when you were about 16, 18, and now that you're a much mature woman and kind of uh, getting your face more out there than you did before, does it, did it, was there ever a point in your life where you kind of got tired, even though you said that you always wanted to sing, where you said maybe I'll kind of put it away for a second and maybe just do oh, something Oh, baby, I, I, I so often got really, really sick of this mess. You know, I mean, how long? It, it's kind of like a man who beats you. I mean, it's something I was giving my whole heart to that wasn't letting me in at all. So I quit. Every, every time a, a, a deal went, went, went awry, I quit. And then they would call and say, come and do this, and I'd start again. But if it had been just a, I don't even know that I could have done it if it had been just 50 or 40 years of no one calling. But at least every two years, I did some kind of project. It's just that there was so much disappointment because the project would fail. But um, the, the, if it was one thing that got me over a love affair or a broken heart, it was call and come do a show or call and come record. And it was just like the thing that had happened before had never happened. <laughs> See one in the front row right here. Hi, my name is Drew. Um, Hi, Drew. I love your music. I love what you've been doing your entire career. Uh, you said that you didn't listen to a lot of other musicians, that it was more about what you were doing at the time. I don't now. Um, when I was younger, I liked music and I, I listened all the time, but now I like a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> on the rare occasion that it might happen, what really strikes you in someone else's song or performance that really makes you feel that? What, what, I know that's a hard thing to describe, but... No, it, it, it's really a... It's a silly thing to describe because it, it, it doesn't... I don't know that anybody could do anything right now that would strike my heart. Because, first of all, you have to remember, I just look at it as a song and a performance. When I was younger, I liked, you know, as many people as all the rest of my friends did. I don't know anybody new that has struck me in any kind of way whatsoever. I find the performances today to either be, I am acting as if this is really touching my heart, or I really wanted to touch your heart, so I'm going to act in a manner that will make you think that it's touching your heart. But when Johnny Hartman sung a song, or when you saw Otis Redding on stage, you, you were exhausted when he came off the stage. You just, I don't know whether he was touching your heart or what, but when he came off the stage, you were exhausted. Same thing with James Brown. You know, things, the only thing that would really impress me is if, if you were really amazing. And if people looked at you and were like, I can't believe that. And I don't know anything that's happening right now that are make, is making people, you, they, they say, oh, it's, what you say, oh, it's amazing. But then you say that about every damn thing. <laughs> you know, I don't know, I don't know of any people fainting or having heart attacks at this point <laughs> about, about singers. So I don't know anyone who really would do that. I think that probably the person who comes closest to maybe becoming, possibly having become that kind of singer would have been Whitney Houston. I think that with all the things that had happened to her in the last 15 or 
20 years, I think that with her voice already being excellent, if she could have rested and trained it back to a, a strength, I think that in, at 50 and 60, she would have been just a killer. And she would have touched your heart because hers would have been touched. And that's really the only way you can do it. <laughs> I see one in the back third row, all the way to your right. Hi, my name's Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, I teach music, and I'm just curious about um, your first experiences performing. You were talking about the large supper clubs. Um, were there, um, I imagine there were, could you talk about the, the practical performance skills that you learned then that would be maybe tough to learn in school? Um, how did you learn to be a great performer in, in a practical sense? I... I think that as a young person, I looked at it, I looked at the fun of it. I didn't look at the long hours of rehearsal or the going to bed when the gig is over so you won't lose your voice. <laughs> you know, I went to doctors and speech, uh, vocal coaches and whatever, and all I really had to do was shut up and go to bed. That was really all I had to do. Uh, I found that, that, that there was so much cocaine being being blown during uh, my life. It's it's something I've never been able to go on stage and do because the one thing that makes it wreck everybody's voice is the fact that it gives you a false sense of strength. So you push harder, and the next thing you know, you've hurt something, and you wouldn't have done it had you not been high. So while my great love is marijuana, I can't even sing and smoke it because it dries your throat. And the main thing I want to do is sing. So I have to be rested. I have to be, for the most part, not high. Not high at all on, on any kind of drugs. I sip champagne for the afternoon. But the, the practical things that you have to do that are fun, that you think you're doing it so you can be involved in those things. And those are the very things that you really have to give up your time, you know, so that you can practice and rest. And that's, no kid wants to practice and rest. It's like going to school. <laughs> All the way in the back, here we are. Hi, I'm, I'm just wondering, as a Detroiter, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how uh, the music kind of infrastructure in Detroit changed over your career and your involvement with Motown, and if you were personally affected by uh, the time when the company made the decision to move out of Detroit to Los Angeles, how that no, it only you. affected the city when they left. It didn't affect me at all. I was not with Motown. My first record was on Atlantic. And as I often tell people, in 1962, Barry Gordy wanted to be on Atlantic. That was the biggest black music company in the world. L Motown was a local company, and Barry Gordy was carrying those records around in his Buick at the time, trying to sell them. So there was no need for me to want to be, it, be there. The way that the music in the city influenced me is that everybody in 1962 was involved in music in Detroit. So it was a very natural thing to do. I think most of us, most of us had dropped out of school. Most of us did not want to do anything else. And I think that music saved the lives, my life for sure, and, and many others. There were people um, who had gone to school, I always say Martha Reeves and, and, and Diane and maybe one of the other Supremes had gone to school, so they could have gone back to their secretarial jobs had they chosen to, but most of the rest of us uh, had dropped out of school and really didn't have any kind of education. So this business afforded us travel, 
it for, afforded us educa education. None of us spoke the way we do now when we left and went on road the first time. So Detroit really was a, a, a big music school from about 1960 till about 1975, maybe. But when Motown left, it just cast an appall over the city. But my everything big that really happened to me happened. The only thing big that happened to me in Detroit was that that was where I was discovered. And that was where I was signed with Atlantic. But all the other record companies I was ever with were out of town, Nashville, New York, California. And when I did finally have a record on Motown, it was 1982, and nope, there was nobody there that I knew. And it was no longer in Detroit, it was in California then. All right, we've got time for one more question. Don't you bother with that. Oh, <laughs> I see one right here in the front row. Ms. Labatt, thank you so much for your career, your music, everything that you've brought. Uh, my name's Ashley. Hi, Ashley. I'm Thank you guys for finally finding me. <laughs> I'm a friend of David Ritz's, too, and I'm curious as to the process of creating the book. What was it like? Did you sit down for you know, extended periods of time and focus mm -hmm. on one aspect of your life, or was it just sort of free no, form? No, we, we just, uh, it was really kind of free form, and uh, it's very good that David takes notes and records and then has someone to help him transcribe it because... You know, every, sometimes things would remind me of another time. So it couldn't be told just in order. I was telling him something that happened in 1965, and I'd say, oh, but in 1962, this happened. And we talked for, gosh, some days we talked eight and nine hours. You know, and we had maybe six of those sessions, and then we talked for long lengths of time on the telephone because I w it was very important to me that... Uh, there is nothing, there's, there's absolutely nothing like a, a, a bisexual white guy trying to put words into the mouth of a black woman. So we, we, we had to go around and around. I said, I would, no, no black woman in the world would ever say that, David. So that's what you would say if you were a black woman, but it is what I would say. So we had, we had a lot of those kinds of experiences. <laughs> and some of the things that he... That he uh, some of the things he ascribed to me were so funny. I just let him stay there. I said, I didn't say that, but I would have cracked up had I said it. <laughs> uh, well, y'all. All right. Well, everybody, please join me in thanking Betty Lovett for being here tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you all for sitting down and talking to me.